futurist prediction methods and accuracy. I've been reading a lot of predictions from people who are looking to understand what problems humanity will face 10 to 50 years out, and sometimes longer, in order to work in areas that will be instrumental for the future and wondering how accurate these predictions of the future are. The time frame of predictions that are so far out means that only a tiny fraction of people making those kinds of predictions today have a track record so, if we want to evaluate which predictions are plausible, we need to look at something other than track record. The idea behind the approach of this post was to look at predictions from an independently chosen set of predictors, Wikipedia's list of well-known futurists one, whose predictions are old enough to evaluate in order to understand which prediction techniques worked and which ones didn't work, allowing us to then, mostly in a future post, evaluate the plausibility of predictions that use similar methodologies. Unfortunately, every single predictor from the independently chosen set had a poor record and, on spot checking some predictions from other futurists, it appears that futurists often have a fairly poor track record of predictions so, in order to contrast techniques that worked with techniques that I didn't, I source predictors that have a decent track record from my memory, a non-independent source which introduces quite a few potential biases. Something that gives me more confidence than I'd otherwise have is that I avoided reading independent evaluations of prediction methodologies until after I did the evaluations for this post and wrote 98% of the post and, on reading other people's evaluations, I found that I generally agreed with Tetlock's superforecasting on what worked and what didn't work despite using a wildly different data set. In particular, people who were into big ideas who use a few big hammers on every prediction combined with a cocktail party idea level of understanding of the particular subject to explain why a prediction about the subject would fall to the big hammer generally fared poorly, whether or not their favored big ideas were correct. Some examples of big ideas would be environmental doomsday is coming and hyperconservation will pervade everything, economic growth will create near-infinite wealth, soon, Moore's law is supremely important, quantum mechanics is supremely important, etc. Another common trait of poor predictors is lack of anything resembling serious evaluation of past predictive errors, making improving their intuition or methods impossible, unless they do so in secret. Instead, poor predictors often pick a few predictions that were accurate or at least vaguely sounded similar to an accurate prediction and use those to sell their next generation of predictions to others. By contrast, people who had, relatively, accurate predictions had a deep understanding of the problem and also tended to have a record of learning lessons from past predictive errors. Due to the differences in the data sets between this post and Tetlock's work, the details are quite different here. The predictors that I found to be relatively accurate had deep domain knowledge and, implicitly, had access to a huge amount of information that they filtered effectively in order to make good predictions. Tetlock was studying people who made predictions about a wide variety of areas that were, in general, outside of their areas of expertise, so what Tetlock found was that people really dug into the data and deeply understood the limitations of the data, which allowed them to make relatively accurate predictions. But, although the details of how people operated are different, at a high level, the approach of really digging into specific knowledge was the same. Because this post is so long, this post will contain a very short summary about each predictor followed by a moderately long summary on each predictor. Then we'll have a summary of what techniques and styles worked and what didn't work, with the full details of the prediction grading and comparisons to other evaluations of predictors in the appendix. Ray Kurzweil, 7% accuracy. Relies on, exponential or super-exponential progress that is happening must continue, predicting the future based on past trends continuing, optimistic rounding up of facts and interpretations of data, panacea thinking about technologies and computers, cocktail party ideas on topics being predicted. Jacques Fresco, predictions mostly too far into the future to judge, but seems very low for judgeable predictions. Relies on, panacea thinking about human nature, the scientific method, and computers, certainty that human values match Fresco's values. Buckminster Fuller, too few predictions to rate, but seems very low for judgeable predictions. 
relies on cocktail party ideas on topics being predicted to an extent that's extreme even for a futurist. Michio Kaku, 3% accuracy. Relies on panacea thinking about quantum, computers, and biotech, exponential progress of those. John Naisbitt, predictions too vague to score, mixed results in terms of big picture accuracy, probably better than any futurist here other than Dixon, but this is not comparable to the percentages given for other predictors. Relies on trend prediction based on analysis of newspapers. Gerard K. O'Neill, predictions mostly too far into the future to judge, but seems very low for judgeable predictions. Relies on doing the opposite of what other futurists had done incorrectly, could be described as trying to buy low and sell high based on looking at prices that had gone up a lot recently. Optimistic rounding up of facts and interpretations of data in areas O'Neill views as underrated, cocktail party ideas on topics being predicted. Patrick Dixon, 10% accuracy, also much better at big picture predictions than any other futurist here, but not in the same league as non-futurist predictors such as Yege, Gates, etc. Relies on, extrapolating existing trends, but with much less optimistic rounding up than almost any other futurist here, exponential progress, stark divide between second millennial thinking and third millennial thinking. Alvin Toffler, predictions mostly too vague to score, of non-vague predictions, Toffler had an incredible knack for naming a trend as very important and likely to continue right when it was about to stop. Relies on, exponential progress that is happening must continue, a medley of cocktail party ideas inspired by speculation about what exponential progress will bring. Steve Yege, 50% accuracy, general vision of the future generally quite accurate. Relies on, deep domain knowledge, font of information flowing into Amazon and Google, looking at what's trending. Brian Kaplan, 100% accuracy. Relies on, taking the other side of bad bets predictions people make and mostly relying on making very conservative predictions. Bill Gates, Nathan Merveld, old MS leadership, timeframe of predictions too vague to score, but uncanny accuracy on a vision of the future as well as the relative importance of various technologies. Relies on, deep domain knowledge, discussions between many people with deep domain knowledge, font of information flowing into Microsoft. Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil has claimed to have an 86% accuracy rate on his predictions, a claim which is often repeated, such as by Peter Diamandis where he says. Of the 147 predictions that Kurzweil has made since the 1990s, fully 115 of them have turned out to be correct, and another 12 have turned out to be essentially correct, off by a year or two, giving his predictions a stunning 86% accuracy rate. The article is titled A Google Exec Just Claimed the Singularity Will Happen by 2029 Opens with Ray Kurzweil, Google's Director of Engineering, is a well-known futurist with a high-hitting track record for accurate predictions and it cites this list of predictions on Wikipedia. 86% is an astoundingly good track record for non-obvious, major, predictions about the future. This claim seems to be the source of other people claiming that Kurzweil has a high accuracy rate, such as here and here. I checked the accuracy rate of the Wikipedia list Diamandis cited myself, using archive.org to get the list from when his article was published, and found a somewhat lower accuracy of 7%. Fundamentally, the thing that derailed so many of Kurzweil's predictions is that he relied on the idea of exponential and accelerating growth in basically every area he can imagine, and even in a number of areas that have had major growth, the growth didn't keep pace with his expectations. His basic thesis is that not only we do have exponential growth due to progress, improve technologically, etc., improvement in technology feeds back into itself, causing an increase in the rate of exponential growth, so we have double exponential growth, as in e to the power of x to the power of x, not 2e to the power of x, in many important areas, such as computer performance. He repeatedly talks about this unstoppable exponential or super-exponential growth, for example, in his 1990 book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, 
He says one reliable prediction we can make about the future is that the pace of change will continue to accelerate and he discusses this again in his 1999 book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, his 2001 essay on accelerating technological growth, titled The Law of Accelerating Returns, his 2005 book, The Singularity is Near, etc. One thing that's notable is despite the vast majority of his falsifiable predictions from earlier work being false, Kurzweil continues to use the same methodology to generate new predictions each time which is reminiscent of Andrew Gelman's discussion of forecasters who repeatedly forecast the same thing over and over again in the face of evidence that their old forecasts were wrong. For example, in his 2005 The Singularity is Near, Kurzweil notes the existence of S-curves, where growth from any particular thing isn't necessarily exponential, but, as he did in 1990, concludes that exponential growth will continue because some new technology will inevitably be invented which will cause exponential growth to continue and that the law of accelerating returns applies to all of technology, indeed to any evolutionary process. It can be charted with remarkable precision in information-based technologies because we have well-defined indexes, for example, calculations per second per dollar, or calculations per second per gram, to measure them. In 2001, he uses this method to plot a graph and then predicts unbounded life expectancy by 2011. The quote below isn't unambiguous on life expectancy being unbounded, but it's unambiguous if you read the entire essay or his clarification on his life expectancy predictions, where he says I don't mean life expectancy based on your birth date, but rather your remaining life expectancy. Most of you, again I'm using the plural form of the word, are likely to be around to see the singularity. The expanding human lifespan is another one of those exponential trends. In the 18th century, we added a few days every year to human longevity, during the 19th century we added a couple of weeks each year, and now we're adding almost a half a year every year. With the revolutions in genomics, proteomics, rational drug design, therapeutic cloning of our own organs and tissues, and related developments in bioinformation sciences, we will be adding more than a year every year within 10 years. Kurzweil pushes the date this is expected to happen back by more than one year per year, the last citation I saw on this was a 2016 prediction that we would have unbounded life expectancy by 2029, which is characteristic of many of Kurzweil's predictions. Quite a few people have said that Kurzweil's methodology is absurd because exponential growth can't continue indefinitely in the real world, but Kurzweil explains why he believes this is untrue in his 1990 book, The Age of Intelligent Machines. A remarkable aspect of this new technology is that it uses almost no natural resources. Silicon chips use infinitesimal amounts of sand and other readily available materials. They use insignificant amounts of electricity. As computers grow smaller and smaller, the material resources utilized are becoming an inconsequential portion of their value. Indeed, software uses virtually no resources at all. That we're entering a world of natural resource abundance because resources and power are irrelevant to computers hasn't been correct so far, but luckily for Kurzweil, many of the exponential and double exponential processes he predicted would continue indefinitely stopped long before natural resource limits would come into play, so this wasn't a major reason Kurzweil's predictions have been wrong, although it would be if his predictions were less inaccurate. At a meta level, one issue with Kurzweil's methodology is that he has a propensity to round up to make growth look faster than it is in order to fit the world to his model. For example, in the law of accelerating returns, we noted that Kurzweil predicted unbounded lifespan by 2011 based on accelerating lifespan when now we're adding almost a half a year every year in 2001. However, life expectancy growth in the US, which, based on his comments, seems to be most of what Kurzweil writes about was only 0.2 years per year overall and 0.1 years per year in longer-lived demographics and worldwide life expectancy was 0.3 years per year. While it's technically true that you can round 0.3 to 0.5 if you're rounding to the nearest 0.5, 
That's a very unreasonable thing to do when trying to guess when unbounded lifespan will happen because the high rate of worldwide increased life expectancy was mostly coming from catch-up growth where there was a large reduction in things that caused unnaturally shortened lifespans. If you want to predict what's going to happen at the high end, it makes more sense to look at high-end lifespans, which were increasing much more slowly. Another way in which Kurzweil rounded up to get his optimistic prediction was to select a framing that made it look like we were seeing extremely rapid growth in life expectancies. But if we simply plot life expectancy over time since, say, 1950, we can see that growth is mostly linear-ish trending to sublinear, and this is true even if we cut the graph off when Kurzweil was writing in 2001, with some superlinear periods that trend down to sublinear. Kurzweil says he's a fan of using indexes, etc., to look at growth curves, but in this case where he can easily do so, he instead chooses to pick some numbers out of the air because his standard methodology of looking at the growth curves results in a fairly boring prediction of lifespan growth slowing down. So there are three kinds of rounding up in play here, picking an unreasonably optimistic number, rounding up that number, and then selectively not plotting a bunch of points on the time series to paint the picture Kurzweil wants to present. Kurzweil's rounding up is also how he came up with the predictions that, among other things, computer performance size slash cost and economic growth would follow double exponential trajectories. For computer cost, transistor size, Kurzweil plotted, on a log scale, a number of points on the silicon scaling curve, plus one very old point from the pre-silicon days, when transistor size was on a different scaling curve. He then fits what appears to be a cubic to this, and since a cubic wants to either have high growth or high anti-growth in the future, and the pre-silicon point puts pulls the cubic fit very far down in the past, the cubic fit must want to go up in the future and Kurzweil rounds up this cubic growth to exponential. This was also very weakly supported by the transistor scaling curve at the time Kurzweil was writing. As someone who was following ITRS roadmaps at the time, my recollection is that ITRS set a predicted Moore's law scaling curve and semiconductor companies raced to beat curve, briefly allowing what appeared to be super exponential scaling since they would consistently beat the roadmap, which was indexed against Moore's law. However, anyone who actually looked at the details of what was going on or talked to semiconductor engineers instead of just looking at the scaling curve would have known that people generally expected both that super exponential scaling was temporary and not sustainable and that the end of Dennett scaling as well as transistor delay dominated, as opposed to interconnect delay dominated, high performance processes were imminent, meaning that exponential scaling of transistor sizes would not lead to the historical computer performance gains that had previously accompanied transistor scaling. This expectation was so widespread that it was discussed in undergraduate classes at the time. Anyone who spent even the briefest amount of time looking into semiconductor scaling would have known these things at the time Kurzweil was talking about how we were entering an era of double exponential scaling and would have thought that we would be lucky to even having general single exponential scaling of computer performance, but since Kurzweil looks at the general shape of the curve and not the mechanism, none of this knowledge informed his predictions, and since Kurzweil rounds up the available evidence to support his ideas about accelerating acceleration of growth, he was able to find a selected set of data points that supported the curve fit he was looking for. We'll see this kind of rounding up done by other futurists discussed here, as well as long-termists discussed in the appendix, and we'll also see some of the same themes over and over again, particularly exponential growth and the idea that exponential growth will lead to even faster exponential growth due to improvements in technology causing an acceleration of the rate at which technology improves. Jacques Fresco. In 1969, Jacques Fresco wrote Looking Forward. Fresco claims it's possible to predict the future by knowing what values people will have in the future and then using that to derive what the future will look like. Fresco doesn't describe how one can know the values people will have in the future and assumes people will have the values he has, which one might describe as 60s-70s hippie values. Another major mechanism he uses to predict the future is the idea that people of the future will be more scientific and apply the scientific method. 
he writes about how the scientific method is only applied in a limited fashion, which led to thousands of years of slow progress. But, unlike in the 20th century, in the 21st century, people will be free from bias and apply the scientific method in all areas of their life, not just when doing science. People will be fully open to experimentation in all aspects of life and all people will have a habitual open-mindedness coupled with a rigid insistence that all problems be formulated in a way that permits factual checking. This will, among other things, lead to complete self-knowledge of one's own limitations for all people as well as an end to unhappiness due to suboptimal political and social structures. The third major mechanism Fresco uses to derive his predictions is the idea that computers will be able to solve basically any problem one can imagine and that manufacturing technology will also progress similarly. Each of the major mechanisms that are in play in Fresco's predictions are indistinguishable from magic. If you can imagine a problem in the domain, the mechanism is able to solve it. There are other magical mechanisms in play as well, generally what was in the air at the time. For example, behaviorism and operant conditioning were very trendy at the time, so Fresco assumes that society at large will be able to operant condition itself out of any social problems that might exist. Although most of Fresco's predictions are technically not yet judgeable because they're about the far future, for the predictions he makes whose time has come, I didn't see one accurate prediction. Buckminster Fuller. Fuller is best known for inventing the geodesic dome, although the geodesic dome were actually made by Walther Bowersfeld decades before Fuller invented them. Fuller is also known for a variety of other creations, like the dim action car, as well as his futurist predictions. I couldn't find a great source of a very long list of predictions from Fuller, but I did find this interview, where he makes a number of predictions. Fuller basically free associates with words, making predictions by riffing off of the English meaning of the word, for example, see the teleportation prediction, or sometimes an even Vorgelenk. Predictions from the video. We'll be able to send people by radio because atoms have frequencies and radio waves have frequencies so it will be possible to pick up all of our frequencies and send them by radio. Undeveloped countries, as opposed to highly developed countries, will be able to get the most advanced technologies via the moon. We're going to put people on the moon for a year, which will require putting something like mile diameter of Earth activity into a little black box weighing 500 pounds so that the moon person will be able to operate locally as if they were on Earth. This will result in everyone realizing they could just get a little black box and they'll no longer need local sewer systems, water, power, etc. Humans will be fully automated out of physical work. The production capability of China and India will be irrelevant and the only thing that will matter is who can get the consumers from China and India. There will be a realistic accounting system of what wealth is, which is really about energy due to the law of conservation of energy, which also means that wealth won't deteriorate and get lost. Wealth can only increase because energy can't be created or destroyed and when you do an experiment, you can only learn more, so wealth can only be created. This will make the entire world successful. For those who've heard that Fuller predicted the creation of Bitcoin, that last prediction about an accounting system for wealth is the one people are referring to. Typically, people who say this haven't actually listened to the interview where he states the whole prediction and are themselves using Fuller's free association method. Bitcoin comes from spending energy to mine Bitcoin and Fuller predicted that the future would have a system of wealth based on energy, therefore Fuller predicted the creation of Bitcoin. If you actually listen to the interview, Bitcoin doesn't even come close to satisfying the properties of the system Fuller describes, but that doesn't matter if you're doing Fuller-style free association. In this post, Fuller has fewer predictions graded than almost anyone else, so it's unclear what his accuracy would be if we had a list of, say, 100 predictions, but the predictions I could find have a 0% accuracy rate. Michio Kaku Among people on Wikipedia's futurist list, Michio Kaku is probably relatively well-known because, as part of his work on science popularization, he's had a nationally, U.S., 
syndicated radio show since 2006 and he frequently appears on talk shows and is interviewed by news organizations. In his 1997 book, Visions, How Science Will Revolutionize the 21st Century, Kaku explains why predictions from other futurists haven't been very accurate and why his predictions are different. Most predictions of the future have floundered because they have reflected the eccentric, often narrow viewpoints of a single individual. The same is not true of visions. In the course of writing numerous books, articles, and science commentaries, I have had the rare privilege of interviewing over 150 scientists from various disciplines during a 10-year period. On the basis of these interviews, I have tried to be careful to delineate the time frame over which certain predictions will or will not be realized. Scientists expect some predictions to come about by the year 2020, others will not materialize until much later, from 2050 to the year 2100. Kaku also claims that his predictions are more accurate than many other futurists because he's a physicist and thinking about things in the ways that physicists do allows for accurate predictions of the future. It is, I think, an important distinction between visions, which concerns an emerging consensus among the scientists themselves, and the predictions in the popular press made almost exclusively by writers, journalists, sociologists, science fiction writers, and others who are consumers of technology, rather than by those who have helped to shape and create it. As a research physicist, I believe that physicists have been particularly successful at predicting the broad outlines of the future. Professionally, I work in one of the most fundamental areas of physics, the quest to complete Einstein's dream of a theory of everything. As a result, I am constantly reminded of the ways in which quantum physics touches many of the key discoveries that shaped the 20th century. In the past, a track record of physicists has been formidable. We have been intimately involved with introducing a host of pivotal inventions, TV, radio, radar, X-rays, the transistor, the computer, the laser, the atomic bomb, decoding the DNA molecule, opening new dimensions in probing the body with PET, MRI, and CAT scans, and even designing the internet and the World Wide Web. He also specifically calls out Kurzweil's predictions as absurd, saying Kurzweil has preposterous predictions about the decades ahead, from vacationing on Mars to banishing all diseases. Although Kaku finds Kurzweil's predictions ridiculous, his predictions rely on some of the same mechanics Kurzweil relies on. For example, Kaku assumes that materials, commodity prices will tank in the then near future because the advance of technology will make raw materials less important and Kaku also assumes the performance and cost scaling of computer chips would continue on the historical path it was on during the 70s and 80s. Like most of the other futurists from Wikipedia's list, Kaku also assumed that the pace of scientific progress would rapidly increase, although his reasons are different, he cites increased synergy between the important fields of quantum mechanics, computer science, and biology, which he says are so important that it will be difficult to be a research scientist in the future without having some working knowledge of all of those fields. Kaku assumed that UV lithography would run out of steam and that we'd have to switch to X-ray or electron lithography, which would then run out of steam, requiring us to switch to a fundamentally different substrate for computers, optical, molecular, or DNA, to keep performance and scaling on track, but advances in other fundamental computing substrates have not materialized quickly enough for Kaku's predictions to come to pass. Kaku assigned very high weight to things that have what he considers quantum effects, which is why, for example, he cites the microprocessor as something that will be obsolete by 2020, they're not quantum, whereas fiber optics will not be obsolete, they rely on quantum mechanisms. Although Kaku pans other futurists for making predictions without having a real understanding of the topics they're discussing, it's not clear that Kaku has a better understanding of many of the topics being discussed even though, as a physicist, Kaku has more relevant background knowledge. The combination of assumptions above that didn't pan out leads to a fairly low accuracy rate for Kaku's predictions in visions. I didn't finish visions, but the prediction accuracy rate of the part of the book I read, from the beginning until somewhere in the middle, 
to avoid cherry-picking, was 3%, arguably 6% if you give full credit to the prediction I gave half credit to. He made quite a few predictions I didn't score in which he said something may happen. Such a prediction is, of course, unfalsifiable because the statement is true whether or not the event happens. John Naismith. Anyone who's a regular used bookstore bargain bin shopper will have seen this name on the cover of Megatrends, which must be up there with Lee Iacocca's autobiography as one of the most common bargain bin fillers. Naismith claims that he's able to accurately predict the future using content analysis of newspapers, which he says was used to provide great insights during World War II and has been widely used by the intelligence community since then, but hadn't been commercially applied until he did it. Naismith explains that this works because there's a fixed amount of space in newspapers, apparently newspapers can't be created or destroyed nor can newspapers decide to print significantly more or less news or have editorial shifts in what they decide to print that are not reflected by identical changes in society at large. Why are we so confident that content analysis is an effective way to monitor social change? Simply stated, because the news hole in a newspaper is a closed system. For economic reasons, the amount of space devoted to news in a newspaper does not change significantly over time. So, when something new is introduced, something else or a combination of things must be omitted. You cannot add unless you subtract. It is the principle of forced choice in a closed system. Unfortunately, it's not really possible to judge Naisbitt's predictions because he almost exclusively deals in vague, horoscope-like, predictions which can't really be judged as correct or incorrect. If you just read Megatrends for the flavor of each chapter and don't try to pick out individual predictions, some chapters seem quite good, for example, industrial society, greater than information society, but some are decidedly mixed even if you very generously grade his vague predictions, for example, from forced technology to high-tech, high-touch. This can't really be compared to the other futurists in this post because it's much easier to make vague predictions sound roughly correct than to make precise predictions correct but, even so, if reading for general feel of what direction the future might go, Naisbitt's predictions are much more on the mark than any other futurist discussed. That being said, as far as I read in his book, the one concrete prediction I could find was incorrect, so if you want to score Naisbitt comparably to the other futurists discussed here, you might say his accuracy rate is 0% but with very wide error bars. Gerard K. O'Neill. O'Neill has two relatively well-known non-fiction futurist books, 2081 and The Technology Edge. 2081 was written in 1980 and predicts the future 100 years from then. The Technology Edge discusses what O'Neill thought the US needed to do in 1983 to avoid being obsoleted by Japan. O'Neill spends a lot more space on discussing why previous futurists were wrong than any other futurist under discussion. O'Neill notes that most futurists, overestimated how much the world would be transformed by social and political change and underestimated the forces of technological change and cites Kipling, Verne, Wells, Haldane, and Ballamy, as people who did this. O'Neill also says that scientists tend to overestimate the chances for major scientific breakthroughs and underestimate the effects of straightforward developments well within the boundaries of existing knowledge and cites Haldane again on this one. O'Neill also cites spaceflight as a major miss of futurists past, saying that they tended to underestimate how quickly spaceflight was going to develop. O'Neill also says that it's possible to predict the future without knowing the exact mechanism by which the change will occur. For example, he claims that the automobile could have been safely predicted even if the internal combustion engine hadn't been invented because steam would have also worked. But he also goes on to say that there are things it would have been unreasonable to predict, like the radio, TV, and electronic communications, saying that even though the foundations for those were discovered in 1865 and that the time interval between a foundational discovery and its application is usually quite long, citing 30 to 50 years from quantum mechanics to integrated circuits and 100 plus years from relativity to faster than light travel, 
and 50 plus years from the invention of nuclear power without a profound impact. I don't think O'Neill ever really explains why his predictions are of the automobile kind in a convincing way. Instead, he relies on doing the opposite of what he sees as mistakes others made. The result is that he predicts huge advancements in spaceflight, saying we should expect we should expect large-scale space travel and colonization by 2081, presaged by wireless transmission of energy by 2000, referring to energy beamed down from satellites, and interstellar probes by 2025, presumably something of a different class than the Voyager probes, which were sent out in 1977. In 1981, he said a fleet of reusable vehicles of 1990s vintage, numbering much less than today's world fleet of commercial jet transports, would be quite enough to provide transport into space and back again for several hundred million people per year, predicting that something much more advanced than the NASA space shuttle would be produced shortly afterwards. Continuing that progress by the year 2010 or thereabouts there will be many space colonies in existence and many new ones being constructed each year. Most of O'Neill's predictions are for 2081, but he does make the occasional prediction for a time before 1981. All of the falsifiable ones I could find were incorrect, giving him an accuracy rate of approximately 0% but with fairly wide error bars. Patrick Dixon. Dixon is best known for writing FutureWise, but he has quite a few books with predictions about the future. In this post, we're just going to look at FutureWise, because it's the most prediction-oriented book Dixon has that's old enough that we ought to be able to make a call on a decent number of his predictions, FutureWise is from 1998, his other obvious candidate, the future of almost everything is from 2015 and looks forward a century. Unlike most other futurists featured in this post, Dixon doesn't explicitly lay out why you should trust his predictions in FutureWise in the book itself, although he sort of implicitly does so in the acknowledgements, where he mentions having interacted with many very important people. I am indebted to the hundreds of senior executives who have shaped this book by their participation in presentations on the six faces of the future. The content has been forged in the realities of their own experience. And although he doesn't explicitly refer to himself, he also says that business success will come from listening to folks who have great vision. Those who are often right will make a fortune. Trend hunting in the future will be a far cry from the 70s or 80s, when everything was more certain. In a globalized market there are too many variables for back projection and forward projection to work reliably. That's why economists don't make good futurologists when it comes to new technologies, and why so many boards of large corporations are in such a mess when it comes to quantum leaps in thinking beyond 2000. Second millennial thinking will never get us there. A senior board member of a Fortune 1000 company told me recently, I'm glad I'm retiring so I don't have to face these decisions. What can we do? The senior executive declares. Later, in the future of almost everything, Dixon lays out the techniques that he says worked when he wrote FutureWise, which has stood the test of time for more than 17 years. Dixon says. All reliable, long-range forecasting is based on powerful megatrends that have been driving profound, consistent and therefore relatively predictable change over the last 30 years. Such trends are the basis of every well-constructed corporate strategy and government policy. These wider trends have been obvious to most trend analysts like myself for a while, and have been well described over the last 20 to 30 years. They have evolved much more slowly than booms and busts, or social fads. And lays out trends such as fall in costs of production of most mass-produced items, increased concern about environment sustainability, fall in price of digital technology, telecoms and networking, rapid growth of all kinds of wireless mobile devices, ever larger global corporations, mergers, consolidations. Dixon declines to mention trends he predicted that didn't come to pass, such as his prediction that increased tribalism will mean that most new wealth is created in small firms of 20 or fewer employees which will mostly be family-owned, 
or his prediction that the death of old economics means that we'll be able to have high economic growth with low unemployment and no inflationary pressure indefinitely, or cases where the trend progression caused Dixon's prediction to be wildly incorrect, a common problem when making predictions off of exponential trends because a relatively small inaccuracy in the rate of change can result in a very large change in the final state. Dixon's website is full of endorsements for him, with implicit and explicit claims that he's a great predictor of the future, as well as more general statements such as Patrick Dixon has been ranked as one of the 20 most influential business thinkers alive today. Back in FutureWise, Dixon relies heavily on the idea of a stark divide between second millennial thinking and third millennial thinking repeatedly comes up in Dixon's text. Like nearly everyone else under discussion, Dixon also extrapolates out from many existing trends to make predictions that didn't pan out, for example, he looked at the falling cost and decreasing price of phone lines and predicted that people would end up with a huge number of phone lines in their home by 2005 and that screens getting thinner would mean that we'd have paper-thin display sheets in significant use by 2005. This kind of extrapolation sometimes works and Dixon's overall accuracy rate of 10% is quite good compared to the other futurists under discussion here. However, when Dixon explains his reasoning in areas I have some understanding of, he seems to be operating at the buzzword level, so that when he makes a correct call, it's generally for the wrong reasons. For example, Dixon says that software will always be buggy, which seems true, at least to date. However, his reasoning for this is that new computers come out so frequently, he says less than 20 months, a reference to the 18-month timeline in Moore's Law, and it takes so long to write good software, at least 20 years, that programmers will always be too busy rewriting software to run on the new generation of machines. Due to the age of the book, he uses the example of brand new code, written for Pentium chips. It's simply not the case that most bugs or even, as a fraction of bugs, almost any bugs are due to programmers rewriting existing code to run on new CPUs. If you really squint, you can see things like Android devices having lots of security bugs due to the difficulty of updating Android and backporting changes to older hardware, but those kinds of bugs are both a small fraction of all bugs and not really what Dixon was talking about. Similarly, on how computer backups will be done in the future, Dixon basically correctly says that home workers will be vulnerable to data loss and people who are serious about saving data will back up data online, back up data online to computers in other cities as the ultimate security. But Dixon's stated reason for this is that workstations already have large disk capacity, greater than equals 2 GB, and floppy disks haven't kept up, less than 2 megabytes, so it would take thousands of floppy disks to do backups, which is clearly absurd. However, even at the time, zip drives, 100 megabytes per portable disk, were common and, although it didn't take off, the same company that made zip drives also made 1 gigabyte jazz drives. And, of course, tape backup was also used at the time and is still used today. This trend has continued to this day, large, portable, disks are available, and quite a few people I know transfer or backup large amounts of data on portable disks. The reason most people don't do disk tape backups isn't that it would require thousands of disks to back up a local computer, if you look at the computers people typically use at home, most people could back up their data onto a single portable disk per failure domain and even keep multiple versions on one disk, but that online cloud backups are more convenient. Since Dixon's reasoning was incorrect, at least in the cases where I'm close enough to the topic to understand how applicable the reasoning was, it seems that when Dixon is correct, it can't be for the stated reason and Dixon is either correct by coincidence or because he's looking at the broader trend and came up with an incorrect rationalization for the prediction. But for the above, it's very difficult to actually correctly predict the growth rate of a trend over time, so without some understanding of the mechanics in play, one could also say that a prediction that comes true based on some rough trend is also correct by coincidence. Alvin Toffler, Heidi Toffler. Like most others on this list, Toffler claims some big prediction wins. The Tofflers claimed on their website to have foretold the breakup of the Soviet Union, 
the reunification of Germany and the rise of the Asia-Pacific region. He said in the People's Daily interview that Future Shock envisioned cable television, video recording, virtual reality and smaller U.S. families. In this post, we'll look at Future Shock, Toffler's most famous work, written in 1970. According to a number of sources, Alvin Toffler's major works were co-authored by Heidi Toffler. In the books themselves, Heidi Toffler is acknowledged as someone who helped out a lot, but not as an author, despite the remarks elsewhere about co-authorship. In this section, I'm going to refer to Toffler in the singular, but you may want to mentally substitute the plural. Toffler claims that we should understand the present not only by understanding the past, but also by understanding the future. Previously, men studied the past to shed light on the present. I have turned the time mirror around, convinced that a coherent image of the future can also shower us with valuable insights into today. We shall find it increasingly difficult to understand our personal and public problems without making use of the future as an intellectual tool. In the pages ahead, I deliberately exploit this tool to show what it can do. Toffler generally makes vague, wish-why-wash-why statements, so it's not really reasonable to score Toffler's concrete predictions because so few predictions are given. However, Toffler very strongly implies that past exponential trends are expected to continue or even accelerate and that the very rapid change caused by this is going to give rise to future shock, hence the book's title. I coined the term future shock to describe the shattering stress and disorientation that we induce in individuals by subjecting them to too much change in too short a time. Fascinated by this concept, I spent the next five years visiting scores of universities, research centers, laboratories, and government agencies, reading countless articles and scientific papers and interviewing literally hundreds of experts on different aspects of change, coping behavior, and the future. Nobel Prize winners, hippies, psychiatrists, physicians, businessmen, professional futurists, philosophers, and educators gave voice to their concern over change, their anxieties about adaptation, their fears about the future. I came away from this experience with two disturbing convictions. First, it became clear that future shock is no longer a distantly potential danger, but a real sickness from which increasingly large numbers already suffer. This psychobiological condition can be described in medical and psychiatric terms. It is the disease of change. Earnest intellectuals talk bravely about educating for change or preparing people for the future. But we know virtually nothing about how to do it. The purpose of this book, therefore, is to help us come to terms with the future, to help us cope more effectively with both personal and social change by deepening our understanding of how men respond to it. The big hammer that Toffler uses everywhere is extrapolation of exponential growth, with the implication that this is expected to continue. On the general concept of extrapolating out from curves, Toffler's position is very similar to Kurzweil's. If you can see a trend on a graph, you can use that to predict the future, and the ability of technology to accelerate the development of new technology will cause innovation to happen even more rapidly than you might naively expect. Plotted on a graph, the line representing progress in the past generation would leap vertically off the page. Whether we examine distances traveled, altitudes reached, minerals mined, or explosive power harnessed, the same accelerative trend is obvious. The pattern, here and in a thousand other statistical series, is absolutely clear and unmistakable. Millennia or centuries go by, and then, in our own times, a sudden bursting of the limits, a fantastic spurt forward. The reason for this is that technology feeds on itself. Technology makes more technology possible, as we can see if we look for a moment at the process of innovation. Technological innovation consists of three stages, linked together into a self-reinforcing cycle. Today there is evidence that the time between each of the steps in this cycle has been shortened. Thus it is not merely true, as frequently noted, that 90% of all the scientists who ever lived are now alive, and that new scientific discoveries are being made every day. 
these new ideas are put to work much more quickly than ever before. The first n major examples of this from the book are population growth rate, doubling time of 11 years, which will have to create major changes. Economic growth, doubling time of 15 years, which will increase the amount of stuff people own, this is specifically phrased as amount of stuff and not wealth. It's very strongly implied that this will continue for at least 70 years. Speed of travel, no doubling time is stated, but the reader is invited to extrapolate from the following points, human running speed millions of years ago, 100 miles per hour in the 1880s, 400 miles per hour in 1938, 800 miles per hour by 1958, 4,000 miles per hour very shortly afterwards, 18,000 miles per hour when orbiting the Earth. Reduced time from conception of an idea to the application, used to support the idea that growth will accelerate. As we just noted above, when discussing Dixon, Kurzweil, etc., predicting the future by extrapolating out exponential growth is fraught. Toffler somehow manages to pull off the anti-predictive feat of naming a bunch of trends which were about to stop, some of which already had their writing on the wall when Toffler was writing. Toffler then extrapolates from the above and predicts that the half-life of everything will become shorter, which will overturn how society operates in a variety of ways. For example, companies and governments will replace bureaucracies with adhocracies sometime between 1995 and 2020. The concern that people will feel like cogs as companies grow larger is obsolete because, in adhocracy, the entire concept of top-down command and control will disappear, obsoleted by the increased pace of everything causing top-down command and control structures to disappear. While it's true that some companies have less top-down direction than would have been expected in Toffler's time, many also have more, which has been enabled by technology allowing employers to keep stricter tabs on employees than ever before, making people more of a cog than ever before. Another example is that Toffler predicted human colonization of the ocean, the New Atlantis, long before the arrival of AD 2000 inches. Fabian Giesen points out that, independent of the accuracy of Toffler's predictions, Venkatesh Rayo's Welcome to the Future Norseus explains why future shock didn't happen in areas of very rapid technological development. People from the Wikipedia list who weren't included. Laurie Anderson. I couldn't easily find predictions from her, except some song lyrics that allegedly predicted 9-11 but in a very horoscope sort of way. Arthur Harkins. His Wikipedia entry was later removed for notability reasons and it was already tagged as non-notable at the time. Stephen Hawking. The predictions I could find are generally too far out to grade and are really more suggestions as to what people should do than predictions. For example the Wikipedia Futurist list above links to a 2001 prediction that humans will be left behind by computers, robots if genetic engineering wasn't done to allow humans to keep up and it also links to a 2006 prediction that humans need to expand to other planets to protect the species. Thorkill Christensen. I couldn't easily find a set of English language predictions from Christensen. Thorkill Christensen is associated with but not an author of The Limits to Growth, a 1970s anti-growth polemic. David Sears. Not notable enough to have a Wikipedia page, then or now. John Zerzan. Zerzan seems like more of someone who's calling for change in society due to his political views than a futurist who's trying to predict the future. Steve Yege. As I mentioned at the start, none of the futurists from Wikipedia's list had very accurate predictions, so we're going to look at a couple other people from other sources who aren't generally considered futurists to see how they rank. We previously looked at Yege's predictions here which were written in 2004 and were generally about the next 5 to 10 years, with some further out. There were 9 predictions, technically 10, but one isn't really a prediction. If grading them as written, which is how futurists have been scored, I would rank these at 4 5 ninths, or about 50%. You might argue that this is unfair because Yege was predicting the relatively near future, 
but if we look at relatively near future predictions from futurists, their accuracy rate is generally nowhere near 50%, so I don't think it's unfair to compare the number in some way. If you want to score these like people often score futurists, where they get credit for essentially getting things directionally correct, then I'd say that Yege's score should be between 7 ninths and 8 ninths, depending on how much partial credit he gets for one of the questions. If you want to take a more holistic what would the world look like if Yege's vision were correct versus the world we're in today, I think Yege also does quite well there, with the big miss being that Lisp-based languages have not taken over the world, the success of closure notwithstanding. This is quite different than the futurists here, who generally had a vision of many giant changes that didn't come to pass, for example, if we look at Kurzweil's vision of the world, by 2010, we would have had self-driving cars, a cure for paraplegia, widespread of R, etc. by 2011, we would have unbounded life expectancy, and by 2019 we would have pervasive use of nanotechnology including computers having switched from transistors to nanotubes, effective mitigations for blindness and deafness, fairly widely deployed fully realistic VR that can simulate sex via realistic full-body stimulation, pervasive self-driving cars, predicted again, entirely new fields of art and music, etc., and all that these things imply, which is a very different world than the world we actually live in. And we see something similar if we look at other futurists, who predicted things like living underground, living under the ocean, etc., most predicted many revolutionary changes that would really change society, a few of which came to pass. Yege, instead, predicted quite a few moderate changes, as well as some places where change would be slower than a lot of people expected, and changes were slower than he expected in the areas he predicted, but only by a bit. Yege described his methodology for the post above as. If you read a lot, you'll start to spot trends and undercurrents. You might see people talking more often about some theme or technology that you think is about to take off, or you'll just sense vaguely that some sort of tipping point is occurring in the industry. Or in your company, for that matter. I seem to have many of my best insights as I'm writing about stuff I already know. It occurred to me that writing about trends that seem obvious and inevitable might help me surface a few not-so-obvious ones. So I decided to make some random predictions based on trends I've noticed, and see what turns up. It's basically a mental exercise in mining for insights. In this essay I'll make 10 predictions based on undercurrents I've felt while reading techie stuff this year. As I write this paragraph, I have no idea yet what my 10 predictions will be, except for the first one. It's an easy, obvious prediction, just to kickstart the creative thought process. Then I'll just throw out 9 more, as they occur to me, and I'll try to justify them even if they sound crazy. He's not really trying to generate the best predictions, but still did pretty well by relying on his domain knowledge plus some intuition about what he's seen. In the post about Yege's predictions, we also noted that he's made quite a few successful predictions outside of his predictions post. Steve also has a number of posts that aren't explicitly about predictions that, nevertheless, make pretty solid predictions about how things are today, written way back in 2004. There's It's Not Software, which was years ahead of its time about how people write software, how writing server apps is really different from writing shrinkwrap software in a way that obsoletes a lot of previously solid advice, like Joel's dictum against rewrites, as well as how service-oriented architectures look. The Google at Delphi, again from 2004, correctly predicts the importance of ML and AI as well as Google's very heavy investment in ML, an old interview where he predicts web application programming is gradually going to become the most important client-side programming out there. I think it will mostly obsolete all other client-side toolkits, GTK, Java Swing SWT, QT, and of course all the platform-specific ones like Coco and Win32 slash MFC slash, etc. A number of Steve's internal Google blog posts also make interesting predictions, but as far as I know those are confidential. Quite a few of Yege's predictions would have been considered fairly non-obvious at the time and he seemed to still have a fairly good success rate on his other predictions, although I didn't try to comprehensively find them and score them, 
I sampled some of his old posts and found the overall success rate to be similar to the ones in his predictions post. With Yege and the other predictors that were picked so that we can look at some accurate predictions there is, of course, a concern that there's survivorship bias in picking these predictors. I suspect that's not the case for Yege because he continued to be accurate after I first noticed that he seemed to have accurate predictions, so it's not just that I picked someone who had a lucky streak after the fact. Also, especially with some of his Google internal G plus comments, made fairly high dimension comments that ended being right for the reasons he suggested, which provides a lot more information about how accurate his reasoning was than simply winning a bunch of coin flips in a row. This comment about depth of reasoning doesn't apply to Kaplan, below, because I haven't evaluated Kaplan's reasoning but does apply to MS leadership circa 1990. Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan reports that his track record is 2323 equals 100%. He is much more precise in specifying his predictions than anyone else we've looked at and tries to give a precise bet that will be trivial to adjudicate as well as betting odds. Kaplan started making predictions bets around the time the concept that betting is a tax on bullshit became popular, the idea being that a lot of people are willing to say anything but will quiet down if asked to make a real bet and those that don't will pay a real cost if they make bad real bets, and Kaplan seems to have a strategy as acting as a tax man on bullshit in that he generally takes the safe side of bets that people probably shouldn't have made. Andrew Gelman says. Kaplan's bets are an interesting mix. The first one is a bet where he offered 1 to 100 odds so it's no big surprise that he won, but most of them are at even odds. A couple of them he got lucky on, for example, he bet in 2008 that no large country would leave the European Union before January 1, 2020, so he just survived by one month on that one, but, hey, it's okay to be lucky, and in any case even if he only had won 21 out of 23 bets, that would still be impressive. It seems to me that Kaplan's trick here is to show good judgment on what pitches to swing at. People come at him with some strong, unrealistic opinions, and he's been good at crystallizing these into bets. In poker terms, he waits till he has the nuts, or nearly so. 23 out of 23, that's a great record. I think there's significant value in doing this, both in the general betting is a tax on bullshit sense as well as, more specifically, if you have high belief that someone is trying to take the other side of bad bets and has good judgment, knowing that the Kaplan-esque better has taken the position gives you decent signal about the bet even if you have no particular expertise in the subject. For example, if you look at my bets, even though I sometimes take bets against obviously wrong positions, I much more frequently take bets I have a very good chance of losing, so just knowing that I took a bet provides much less information than knowing that Kaplan took a bet. But, of course, taking Kaplan's side of a bet isn't foolproof. As Gelman noted, Kaplan got lucky at least once, and Kaplan also seems likely to lose the Kaplan and Tabarrok v. Bauman bet on global temperature. For that particular bet, you could also make the case that he's expected to lose since he took the bet with 3 to 1 odds, but a lot of people would argue that 3 to 1 isn't nearly long enough odds to take that bet. The methodology that Kaplan has used to date will never result in a positive prediction of some big change until the change is very likely to happen, so this methodology can't really give you a vision of what the future will look like in the way that Yege or Gates or another relatively accurate predictor who takes wilder bets could. Bill Gates, Nathan Merveld, MS Leadership circa 1990-1997 a handful of memos that were released to the world due to the case against Microsoft which laid out the vision Microsoft executives had about how the world would develop, with or without Microsoft's involvement. These memos don't lay out concrete predictions with timelines and therefore can't be scored in the same way futurist predictions were scored in this post. If rating these predictions on how accurate their vision of the future was, I'd rate them similarly to Steve Yege, who scored 7 ninths or 8 ninths, but the predictions were significantly more ambitious, so they seem much more impressive when controlling for the scope of the predictions. Compared to the futurists we discussed, 
there are multiple ways in which the predictions are much more detailed, and therefore more impressive for a given level of accuracy on top of being more accurate. One is that MS execs have a much deeper understanding of the things under discussion and how they impact each other. With our futurists, they often discuss things at a high level and, when they discuss things in detail, they make statements that make it clear that they don't really understand the topic and often don't really know what the words they're writing mean. MS execs of the era pretty clearly had a deep understanding of the issues in play, which let them make detailed predictions that our futurists wouldn't make, for example, while protocols like FTP and IRC will continue to be used, the near future of the internet is HTTP over TCP and the browser will become a platform in the same way that Windows is a platform, one that's much more important and larger than any OS, unless Microsoft is successful in taking action to stop this from coming to pass, which it was not despite MS execs foreseeing the exact mechanisms that could cause MS to fail to own the internet. MS execs use this level of understanding to make predictions about the kinds of larger things that our futurists discuss, for example, the nature of work and how that will change. Actually having an understanding of the issues in play and not just operating with a typical futurist buzzword level understanding of the topics allowed MS leadership to make fairly good guesses about what the future would look like. For a fun story about how much effort Gates spent on understanding what was going on, see this story by Joel Spolsky on his first Bill Gates review. Bill turned to me. I noticed that there were comments in the margins of my spec. He had read the first page. He had read the first page of my spec and written little notes in the margin. Considering that we only got him the spec about 24 hours earlier, he must have read it the night before. He was asking questions. I was answering them. They were pretty easy, but I can't for the life of me remember what they were, because I couldn't stop noticing that he was flipping through the spec. He was flipping through the spec. Calm down, what are you a little girl? Dot ed. Ellipses are from the original doc, and there were notes in all the margins. On every page of the spec. He had read the whole goddamn thing and written notes in the margins. He read the whole thing. OMG squee. The questions got harder and more detailed. They seemed a little bit random. By now I was used to thinking of Bill as my buddy. He's a nice guy. He read my spec. He probably just wants to ask me a few questions about the comments in the margins. I'll open a bug in the bug tracker for each of his comments and make sure it gets addressed, pronto. Finally the killer question. I don't know, you guys, Bill said, is anyone really looking into all the details of how to do this? Like, all those date and time functions. Excel has so many date and time functions. Is BASIC going to have the same functions? Will they all work the same way? Yes, I said, except for January and February, 1900. Silence. Okay. Well, good work, said Bill. He took his marked up copy of the spec, and left. Gates, and some other MS execs, were very well informed about what was going on to a fairly high level of detail considering all of the big picture concerns they also had in mind. A topic for another post is how MS leadership had a more effective vision for the future than leadership at old line competitors, Novell, IBM, AT&T, Yahoo, Sun, etc., and how this resulted in MS turning into a $2 trillion company while their competitors became, at best, irrelevant and most didn't even succeed at becoming irrelevant and ceased to exist. Reading through old MS memos, it's clear that MS really kept tabs on what competitors were doing and they were often surprised at how ineffective leadership was at their competitors. For example, on Novell, Bill Gates says our traditional competitors are just getting involved with the internet. Novell is surprisingly absent given the importance of networking to their position. Gates noted that Frankenberg, then CEO of Novell, seemed to understand the importance of the internet, but Frankenberg only joined Novell in 1994 and left in 1996 and spent much of his time at Novell reversing the direction the company had taken under Nora, 
which didn't leave Nivelle with a coherent position or plan when Frankenberg resigned two years into the pivot he was leading. In many ways, a discussion of what tech execs at the time thought the future would look like and what paths would lead to success is more interesting than looking at futurists who basically don't understand the topics they're talking about, but I started this post to look at how well futurists understood the topics they discussed and didn't know, in advance, that their understanding of the topics they discuss and resultant prediction accuracy would be so poor. Common sources of futurist errors. Not learning from mistakes. Good predictors tend to be serious at looking at failed past predictions and trying to calibrate. Reasoning from a cocktail party level understanding of a topic. Good predictors tend to engage with ideas in detail. Pushing one or a few big ideas. Generally assuming high certainty about the future. Worse yet, assuming high certainty of scaling curves, especially exponential scaling curves. Panacea thinking. Only seeing the upside, or downside, of technological changes. Starting from evidence-free assumptions. Not learning from mistakes. The futurists we looked at in this post tend to rate themselves quite highly and, after the fact, generally claim credit for being great predictors of the future, so much so that they'll even tell you how you can predict the future accurately. And yet, after scoring them, the most accurate futurist, among the ones who made concrete enough predictions that they could be scored, came in at 10% accuracy with generous grading that gave them credit for making predictions that accidentally turned out to be correct when they mispredicted the mechanism by which the prediction would come to pass. A strict reading of many of their prediction would reduce the accuracy because they said that the prediction would happen because of their predicted mechanism, which is false, rendering the prediction false. There are two tricks that these futurists have used to be able to make such lofty claims. First, many of them make vague predictions and then claim credit if anything vaguely resembling the prediction comes to pass. Second, Almost all of them make a lot of predictions and then only tally up the ones that came to pass. One way to look at a 4% accuracy rate is that you really shouldn't rely on that person's predictions. Another way is that, if they made 500 predictions, they're a great predictor because they made 20 accurate predictions. Since almost no one will bother to go through a list of predictions to figure out the overall accuracy when someone does the latter, making a huge number of predictions and then cherry-picking the ones that were accurate is a good strategy for becoming a renowned futurist. But if we want to figure out how to make accurate predictions, we'll have to look at other people's strategies. There are people who do make fairly good, generally directionally accurate, predictions, as we noted when we looked at Steve Yege's prediction record. However, they tend to be harsh critics of their predictions, as Steve Yege was when he reviewed his own prediction record, saying. I saw the HN thread about Dan Liu's review of this post, and felt people were a little too generous with the scoring. It's unsurprising that a relatively good predictor of the future scored himself lower than I did because taking a critical eye to your own mistakes and calling yourself out for mistakes that are too small for most people to care about is a great way to improve. We can see in communications from Microsoft leadership as well, for example, calling themselves out for failing to predict that a lack of backwards compatibility doomed major efforts like OS 2 and LAN. Man. Doing what most futurists do and focusing on the predictions that worked out without looking at what went wrong isn't such a great way to improve. Cocktail party understanding. Another thing we see among people who make generally directionally correct predictions, as in the Steve Yege post mentioned above, Nathan Merval's 1993 road kill on the information highway, Bill Gates's 1995 The Internet Tidal Wave, etc., is that the person making the prediction actually understands the topic. In all of the above examples, it's clear that the author of the document has a fairly strong technical understanding of the topics being predicted and, in the general case, it seems that people who have relatively accurate predictions are really trying to understand the topic, which is in stark contrast to the futurists discussed in this post, almost all of whom display clear signs of having a having a buzzword level understanding two of the topics they're discussing. 
there's a sense in which it isn't too difficult to make correct predictions if you understand the topic and have access to the right data. Before joining a huge megacorp and then watching the future unfold, I thought documents like Roadkill on the Information Highway and the Internet Tidal Wave were eerily prescient, but once I joined Google in 2013, a lot of trends that weren't obvious from the outside seemed fairly obvious from the inside. For example, it was obvious that mobile was very important for most classes of applications, so much so that most applications that were going to be successful would be mobile-first applications where the web app was secondary, if it existed at all, and from the data available internally, this should have been obvious going back at least to 2010. Looking at what people were doing on the outside, quite a few startups in areas where mobile was critical were operating with a 2009 understanding of the future even as late as 2016 and 2017, where they focused on having a web app first and had no mobile app and a web app that was unusable on mobile. This isn't to say that the problem is trivial, many people with access to the same data still generally make incorrect predictions. A famous example is Vulma's prediction that there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance 3 Bulmer and other MS leadership had access to information as good as MS leadership from a decade earlier, but many of their predictions were no better than the futurists we discussed here. Assuming high certainty. Another common cause of incorrect predictions was having high certainty. That's a general problem that's magnified when making predictions from looking at past exponential growth and extrapolating to the future both because mispredicting the timing of a large change in exponential growth can have a very large impact and also because relatively small sustained changes in exponential growth can also have a large impact. An example that exposed these weaknesses for a large fraction of our futurists was their interpretation of Moore's law, which many interpreted as a doubling of every good thing and or halving of every bad thing related to computers every 18 months. That was never what Moore's law predicted in the first place, but it was a common pop conception of Moore's law. One thing that's illustrative about that is that predictors who were writing in the late 90s and early noughties still made these fantastical Moore's law-based predictions even though it was such common knowledge that both single-threaded computer performance and Moore's law would face significant challenges that this was taught in undergraduate classes at the time. Any futurist who spent a few minutes talking to an expert in the area or even an undergrad would have seen that there's a high degree of uncertainty about computer performance scaling, but most of the futurists we discuss either don't do that or ignore evidence that would add uncertainty to their narrative. For computer scaling in particular, it would have been possible to make a reasonable prediction about 2022 computers in, say, 2000, but it would have had to have been a prediction about the distribution of outcomes which had a lot of weight on a severely reduced performance gains in the future with some weight on a portfolio of possibilities that could have resulted in continued large gains. Someone making such a prediction would have had to, implicitly or explicitly, been familiar with ITRS semiconductor scaling roadmaps of the era as well as recent causes of recent misses, my recollection from reading roadmaps back then was that, in the short term, companies had actually exceeded recent scaling predictions, but via mechanisms that were not expected to be scalable into the future, as well as things that could unexpectedly keep semiconductor scaling on track. Furthermore, such a predictor would also have to be able to evaluate architectural ideas that might have panned out to rule them out or assign them a low probability, such as dataflow processes, the basket of techniques people were working on in order to increase ILP in order an attempt to move from the regime Jaden and Flynn discussed in their classic 1970 and 1973 papers on ILP to the something closer to the bound discussed by Reisman and Foster in 1972 and later by Nicolau and Fisher in 1984, etc. Such a prediction would be painstaking work for someone who isn't in the field because of the sheer number of different things that could have impacted computer scaling. Instead of doing this, futurists relied heavily on the POP understanding they had about semiconductors. Kaku was notable among futurists under discussion for taking seriously the idea that Moore's law wasn't smooth sailing in the future, 
but he incorrectly decided on when UV youth would run out of steam and also incorrectly had high certainty that some kind of more quantum technology would save computer performance scaling. Most other futurists who discussed computers used a line reasoning like Kurzweil's, who said that we can predict what will happen with remarkable precision due to the existence of well-defined indexes. The law of accelerating returns applies to all of technology, indeed to any evolutionary process. It can be charted with remarkable precision in information-based technologies because we have well-defined indexes, for example, calculations per second per dollar, or calculations per second per gram, to measure them. Another thing to note here is that, even if you correctly predict an exponential curve of something, understanding the implications of that precise fact also requires an understanding of the big picture which was shown by people like Yege, Gates, and Mervald but not by the futurists discussed here. An example of roughly getting a scaling curve right but mispredicting the outcome was Dixon on the number of phone lines people would have in their homes. Dixon at least roughly correctly predicted the declining cost of phone lines but incorrectly predicted that this would result in people having many phone lines in their house despite also believing that digital technologies and cell phones would have much faster uptake than they did. With respect to phones, another misprediction, one that came from not having an understanding of the mechanism was his prediction that the falling cost of phone calls would mean that tracking phone calls would be so expensive relative to the cost of calls that phone companies wouldn't track individual calls. For someone who has a bit of understanding about the underlying technology, this is an odd prediction. One reason the prediction seems odd is that the absolute cost of tracking who called whom is very small and the rate at which humans make and receive phone calls is bounded at a relatively low rate, so even if the cost of metadata tracking were very high compared to the cost of the calls themselves, the absolute cost of tracking metadata would still be very low. Another way to look at it would be to look at the number of bits of information transferred during a phone call versus the number of bits of information necessary to store call metadata and the cost of storing that long enough to bill someone on a per call basis. Unless medium-term storage became relatively more expensive than network by a mind-bogglingly large factor, it wouldn't be possible for this prediction to be true and Dixon also implicitly predicted exponentially falling storage costs by his predictions on the size of available computer storage with a steep enough curve that this criteria shouldn't be satisfied and, if it were to somehow be satisfied, the cost of storage would still be so low as to be negligible. Panacea thinking. Another common issue is what Walid Khan calls panacea thinking, where the person assumes that the solution is a panacea that is basically unboundedly great and can solve all problems. We can see this for quite a few futurists who were writing up until the 70s, where many assumed that computers would be able to solve any problem that required thought, computation, or allocation of resources and that resource scarcity would become irrelevant. But it turns out that quite a few problems don't magically get solved because powerful computers exist. For example, the 2008 housing crash created a shortfall of labor for housing construction that only barely got back to historical levels just before COVID hit. Having fast computers neither prevented this nor fixed this problem after it happened because the cause of the problem wasn't a shortfall of computational resources. Some other topics to get this treatment are nanotechnology, quantum, accelerating growth, decreased development time, etc. A closely related issue that almost every futurist here fell prey to is only seeing the upside of technological advancements, resulting in a kind of techno-utopian view of the future. For example, in 2005, Kurzweil wrote, The current disadvantages of web-based commerce, for example, limitations in the ability to directly interact with products and the frequent frustrations of interacting with inflexible menus and forms instead of human personnel, will gradually dissolve as the trends move robustly in favor of the electronic world. By the end of this decade, computers will disappear as distinct physical objects, with displays built in our eyeglasses, and electronics woven in our clothing, providing full immersion visual virtual reality. Thus, going to a website will mean entering a virtual reality environment, 
at least for the visual and auditory senses, where we can directly interact with products and people, both real and simulated. Putting aside the bit about how non-VR interfaces about computers would disappear before 2010, it's striking how Kurzweil assumes that technological advancement will mean that corporations make experiences better for consumers instead of providing the same level of experience at a lower cost or a worse experience at an even lower cost. For Although that example is from Kurzweil, we can see the same techno-utopianism in the other authors on Wikipedia's list with the exception of Zerzan, whose predictions I didn't tally up because prediction wasn't really his shtick. For example, a number of other futurists combined panacea thinking with techno-utopianism to predict that computers would cause things to operate with basically perfect efficiency without human intervention, allowing people at large to live a life of leisure. Instead, the benefits to the median person in the US are subtle enough that people debate whether or not life has improved at all for the median person. And on the topic of increased efficiency, a number of people predicted an extreme version of just-in-time delivery that humanity hasn't even come close to achieving and described its upsides, but no futurist under discussion mentioned the downsides of a worldwide distributed just-in-time manufacturing system and supply chain, which includes increased fragility and decreased robustness, notably impacted quite a few industries from 2020 through at least 2022 due to COVID despite the worldwide system not being anywhere near as just-in-time or fragile as a number of futurists predicted. Though not discussed here because they weren't on Wikipedia's list of notable futurists, there are pessimistic futurists such as Jaron Lanier and Paul Ehrlich. From a quick informal look at relatively well-known pessimistic futurists, it seems that pessimistic futurists haven't been more accurate than optimistic futurists. Many made predictions that were too vague to score and the ones who didn't tended to predict catastrophic collapse or overly dystopian futures which haven't materialized. Fundamentally, dystopian thinkers made the same mistakes as utopian thinkers. For example, Paul Ehrlich fell prey to the same issues utopian thinkers fell prey to and he still maintains that his discredited book, The Population Bomb, was fundamentally correct, just like utopian futurists who maintain that their discredited work is fundamentally correct. Ehrlich's 1968 book opened with, The battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s the world will undergo famines, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. At this late date nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate, although many lives could be saved through dramatic programs to stretch the carrying capacity of the earth by increasing food production. But these programs will only provide a stay of execution unless they are accompanied by determined and successful efforts at population control. Population control is the conscious regulation of the numbers of human beings to meet the needs, not just of individual families, but of society as a whole. Nothing could be more misleading to our children than our present affluent society. They will inherit a totally different world, a world in which the standards, politics, and economics of the 1960s are dead. When this didn't come to pass, he did the same thing as many futurists we looked at and moved the dates on his prediction, changing the text in the opening of his book from 1970s to 1970s and 1980s. Ehrlich then wrote a new book with even more dire predictions in 1990. And then later, Alex simply denied ever having made predictions, even though anyone who reads his book can plainly see that he makes plenty of statements about the future with no caveats about the statements being hypothetical. And I have always followed UN population projections as modified by the Population Reference Bureau, so we never made predictions, even though idiots think we have. Unfortunately for pessimists, simply swapping the sign bit on panacea thinking doesn't make predictions more accurate. Evidence-free assumptions Another major source of errors among these futurists was making an instrumental assumption without any supporting evidence for it. A major example of this is Fresco's theory that you can predict the future by starting from people's values and working back from there, but he doesn't seriously engage with the idea of how people's values can be predicted. 
since those are pulled from his intuition without being grounded in evidence, starting from people's values creates a level of indirection, but doesn't fundamentally change the problem of predicting what will happen in the future. Finn. A goal of this project is to look at current predictors to see who's using methods that have historically had a decent accuracy rate, but we're going to save that for a future post. I normally don't like splitting posts up into multiple parts, but since this post is 30k words, the number of words in a small book, and more words than most pop side books have once you remove the pop stories, and evaluating futurists is relatively self-contained, we're going to stop with that, well, with a bit of an evaluation of some long-termist analyzes that overlap with this post in the Appendix 5. In terms of concrete takeaways, you could consider this post a kind of negative result that supports the very boring idea that you're not going to get very far if you make predictions on topics you don't understand, whereas you might be able to make decent predictions if you have, or gain, a deep expertise of a topic and apply well-honed intuition to predict what might happen. We've looked at, in some detail, a number of common reasoning errors that cause predictions to miss at a high rate and also taken a bit of a look into some things that have worked for creating relatively accurate predictions. A major caveat about what's worked is that while using high-level techniques that work poorly is a good way to generate poor predictions, using high-level techniques that work well doesn't mean much because the devil is in the details and, as trite as this is to say, you really need to think about things. This is something that people who are serious about looking at data often preach. For example, you'll see this theme come up on Andrew Gelman's blog as well as in Richard McElroth's Statistical Rethinking. McElroth, in a lecture targeted at social science grad students who don't have a quantitative background, likens statistical methods to a golem. A golem will mindlessly do what you tell it to do, just like statistical techniques. There's no substitute for using your brain to think through whether or not it's reasonable to apply a particular statistical technique in a certain way. People often seem to want to use methods as a talisman to ward off incorrectness, but that doesn't work. We see this in the long-termist analyzes we examine in the appendix which claim to be more accurate than classical futurists' analyzes because they, among other techniques, state probabilities, which the literature on forecasting, for example, Tetlock's superforecasting, says that one should do. But the analyses fundamentally use the same techniques as the futurists' analyzes we looked at here and then add a few things on top that are also things that people who make accurate predictions do. This is backwards. Things like probabilities need to be a core part of modeling, not something added afterwards. This kind of backwards reasoning a common error when doing data analysis and I would caution readers who think they're safe against errors because their analyses can, at a high level, be described roughly similarly to good analyzers 6. An obvious example of this would be the Bill Gates review we looked at. Gates asked a lot of questions and scribbled quite a few notes in the margins, but asking a lot of questions and scribbling notes in the margins of docs doesn't automatically cause you to have a good understanding of the situation. This example is so absurd that I don't think anyone even remotely reasonable would question it, but most analyzers I see, of the present as well as of the future, make this fundamental error in one way or another and, as Fabian Giesen might say, are cosplaying what a rigorous analysis looks like. Thanks to Nostalgebraist, Arv Research, Misha Yagudin, Gavin Leach, Laurie Tratt, Fabian Giesen, David Turner, Yossi Cranin, Catherine Olson, Tim Pote, David Crawshaw, Jesse Laws, at Typhon Bailaman, Jamie Brandon, Hillel Wayne, Qualador Qualador, Sophia, Justin Blank, Miwosh Dansak, Walid Khan, Mindy Preston, at ES Rogs, Tim Rice, and at S underscore video for comments correction slash discussion, and probably some others I forgot because this post is so long and I've gotten so many comments. Update, correction, an earlier version of this post contained this error, pointed out by ES Rocks. Although I don't believe the error impacts the conclusion, I consider it a fairly major error. If we were doing a tech company style postmortem, that it doesn't significantly impact the conclusion would be included in the how we got lucky section of the postmortem. 
In particular, this was a lucky error because the error was in supporting evidence for something that made a line of reasoning going from bad to worse and the reasoning merely being bad doesn't change the point, but the error I made is a bad habit to have because it could also impact places where the evidence is instrumental to the argument.